I want to welcome everyone. Welcome today. Those who have been away for some time, those who have been on vacation for a while, those who are coming back from the Philippines, welcome. I want to welcome also those who have been here for the first time. If you're here for the first time, my name is Norbert. I'm pastor of the church. We see ourselves as a small church with a big heart. And my prayer is that you will experience that today in our midst. A little bit of housekeeping before we go to the sermon today. You, didn't, you don't have the bulletin because we are aiming to go paperless this year. So what we have is, is, uh, is you go to the Facebook, our Facebook page, where you can find a QR code where you can scan it and you will find the bulletin in there. So we're going paperless uh, this year. One of the reasons why we do that is so that we can contribute to this effort to conserve. So if you don't have bulletin, just go to Facebook and you will find the bulletin there. I want to also encourage you uh, throughout this week, if you feel that you want to go over the sermon again or you want to go over the singing again, we have um, a YouTube account where we play, we record our sermon and our worship today. We also have Spotify where while you're driving, you just turn on your Spotify and you will hear the sermon again. These are the things that we want to do to help you be refreshed with the word of God throughout the week. You say amen to that? All right, cool. So my daughter, who's four years old, uh, and you see her running um, everywhere, has been telling me lately that she wants to do sleepover. She's four years old, and she wants sleepover. And she would say, Dad, I want to go sleepover. And just like any other dad, I would look her in the eye calmly and say, no. I mean, she's four years old. And to that, she would tell me, Papi, sometimes she calls me Papi, Papi, precious do sleepover. <laughs> and then I would say, you know, I'm not precious's dad. I cannot tell her what to do, but I'm your dad, and I'm telling you, you're not allowed because you're four years old. And to that, she would say, Amen. See, the Bible tells us that God disciplines those he loves. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Today, I want to talk to you about what it means to become a child of God, what privileges we have as a child of God, and how God disciplines his children. I want to pick up our story from 1 Samuel 26. But let, let's not, let us review a little bit. Back in 1 Samuel 24, David was being pursued by Saul. King Saul. So these two characters in the story, if you're not familiar, are both anointed by God. And Saul was pursuing David. He wants to kill David. And so there was a time in chapter 24 when Saul caught up with David. And David sneaked in, went to Saul, and cut the corner of his robe instead of killing him. And because of that, Saul realized his mistake and he said, I'm not going to run after you anymore. Chapter 25 was the story last week where Somebody insulted David, and he was so offended that he planned to kill this guy. His name is Nabal. Nabal means fool. He was so offended, he wanted to kill this guy, but God intervened, and he vindicated David. So instead of David killing Nabal, God struck Nabal and killed him. Today, in 1 Samuel 26, Saul is yet back again, pursuing David. He forgot his promise not to pursue David anymore. And now he's back in pursuit. He wants to really kill David. And so David was, 
was pushed to the edge of the territory of Israel in the south. At this point, he was in the south in the land of Ziph or in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul was in pursuit with 3,000 angry soldiers. Now, while they were in a camp, David sneaked in in the middle of the night together with Abishai, his captain. They were so stealthy that they were able to go in the middle of the camp and they found Saul face to face. Saul was sleeping. And they found Saul sleeping with his spear and his water canteen. What's interesting here is the conversation between David and Abishai. There was a theological conversation going on between the two, and they were discussing if they are going to kill Saul. This is the conversation in verse 8 of chapter 26. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now for Abishai, Saul is nothing but an enemy. Now please let him let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. Now this is very interesting because for Abishai Saul was nothing but an enemy. If anybody's pursuing your life he's an enemy and to Abishai Saul is nothing but an enemy. You know it's convenient for David to bring Abishai along and it's convenient for him for Abishai to volunteer to kill Saul because he can always do the pilot thing wash his hands and say I'm not guilty I'm not the one who killed Saul. But Abishai volunteered and said, I'm going, to kill the, I'm going to kill Saul. To Abishai, it's as simple as that. He's an enemy. He's a bad guy. I'm going to kill him. I mean, sometimes for us, bad guy is a bad guy. Good guy is a good guy. It's easy for us to you know, distinguish between the two. But for David, there's a different category. There's another category that he, pull, he put Saul in. He's neither a bad guy. He's not a good guy. He's just a fool, just like Nabal. For David, it's not as simple as killing an Amalekite or a Philistine. For David, Saul is nothing but a fool because he was not pursuing the enemy. He was pursuing David, and David was not the enemy. In fact, it was David who killed Goliath, the enemy, the true enemy. And therefore, to him, Saul is nothing but a fool who is pursuing the wrong guy. So... What did he learn from this? Where did, where did David get the idea that Saul was a fool? It's back in chapter 25, the sermon last, last week. Nabal, who insulted David, David tried to kill him. But then God reminded him that Nabal is nothing but a fool, that he, has, that he doesn't have to kill Nabal. Because God already did this, did this for David. God intervened. And vindicated David by striking Nabal. So in David's understanding, God can handle fools like Saul and Nabal. And all he has to do is to wait on God. Sometimes it's very hard to wait on God. How are you when you're waiting on God? You see, sometimes um, when we are insulted, when we are hurt, when, we are, when people harm us, it's very hard to wait on God. See, this story is not just the story of David's compassion and mercy for Saul. This story is about God ruling the kingdom. This story is about waiting on God because we believe that God rules the kingdom with absolute justice. David must learn, if he is to rule the kingdom, he must learn to trust in God's timing and God's wisdom. So this is how he replied to Abishai. Abishai wants to kill. This is his reply in verse 9 and 10. He said, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? 
And David said, As the Lord lives and the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. So in the understanding of David, it's either Saul will die by himself, or God himself will kill Saul, or he will die in battle. He has nothing to do with this, and he doesn't have to do anything. All he has to do is to wait. So instead of killing Saul, David took the spear and the water canteen. The question is, how did he exactly do that? How did he... How was he able to walk stealthily in the camp with 3,000 sleeping soldiers? The answer to that is in verse 12. The Bible said that God put the entire army of 3,000 men to sleep. And that's amazing. How, is, how did God do that? See, that, that deep sleep, the term there, was the same term that God used or the Bible used in Genesis chapter 3 when God formed Eve from Adam. God put Adam to sleep, deep sleep. At this point, God put the entire army, the entire 3,000 soldiers to sleep. And this tells us two things. Number one, if God can put the 3,000 soldiers to sleep to protect David, God is able to protect David for the rest of his life. And secondly, Saul may be the one who sits on the throne, but the fact that David and Abishai simply walked in the camp, took the water canteen and the spear, walked out stealthily, means God is able to put David on the throne anytime he wanted. And David, all he has to do is to wait on God. And that's why the message is not just, it's not just seeking God's justice, but waiting on God. Again, it's easy for us. When we are harmed or hurt, it's easy for us to retaliate. The knee-jerk reaction is to get even, right? When you're insulted, you want to get even. That's human nature. You want to teach the other guy a lesson. You want to make sure that he doesn't do that to any other person. But that's not your job. That is God's job. God's job is to rule the kingdom. God's job is to execute justice. God's job is to rule the world. That is his job. So that means when we retaliate, we're not letting God do his job. You know what our job is in a prayer? To obey the will of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To submit to the will of God. There's another job. To forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is our job. Retaliation is not our job. Retaliation is simply saying we don't trust God to do what he can and what he should. The call of the Bible for us is to wait on God. So the next time you find yourself in a situation where there's an option to get even, tell yourself what David told Abishai. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or he will die or God will put him in, in death, in battle. I'm not saying that you wish something bad for the other guy. I'm just saying you give it up to God. Because in the end, it is God who will bring about justice. So in the story, David walked away with the spear and the canteen. And David walked, woke the entire army. And he shouted at the other side, of, uh, other side of the hill. And Saul was awakened. And the moment that Saul heard the voice of David, he said, I have acted foolishly. You'll find in verse 21. And when he said that, it must remind you of Nabal, again, foolish or fool. I have acted foolishly. Saul was acting like Nabal. In fact, when you get to the very end of the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, Saul will die by suicide in battle. That's how he will end. 
I mean, this is all God's doing, but God wants David to wait on the Lord. Now, I want you to concentrate on the more interesting part of the story. I hope you're still awake by this time because this is the more important thing in the story. You'll find that the conversation between David and Saul in verse 19. Let me read this for you. It says, Now therefore, this is David speaking to Saul, Let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. What he's saying is that if it's the Lord's will, then I would like to appease God. But if it is men who is egging Saul to kill David, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, let me unpack this for you. We know about Moses. We know about the crossing of the Red Sea. We know about Egypt. We know all this kind of stuff. We also know about the Ten Commandments. Anyone haven't heard of the Ten Commandments? We have all heard about it, Ten Commandments. See, before God gave the Ten Commandments, he said a very, very important thing in Exodus chapter 19. And I want you to pay attention because this is the context how we better understand this story. It's in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. This is what God said. He said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. What God is saying is that among all the nations in the world, among all the, the members of the United Nations, nations in the world, Israel is very special. Israel is treasured possession. What does it mean, treasured possession? It's more than a favorite. Treasured possession in Hebrew is this one word. If you're interested, it's, it's segola. Segola refers to, of all the men and women, you married just one. You married the apple of your eye. You married your beloved. She is or he is your segola, your beloved. Of all the places that you can retire, build your home, you chose one place. That is your segola. And so Israel, both the people and the land, is God's segula. That is what David was talking about. That is what David was complaining about. People are, are evicting me from the land of my inheritance, from God's segula. The land of Israel was God's treasured possession. So for David, to be driven away from the land is to be cut off from his inheritance. And to be cut off from the inheritance is for him to be forced to serve other gods. Now, why is this important? Because worship in the Bible is only done inside the sacred space. Any Jew, any Israelite cannot worship God outside Canaan or outside the Holy Land. The people of Israel can only worship God inside the sacred space, inside the Holy Land. There must be a reason why the Holy Land is Holy Land, correct? Because it's called sacred space. This is where God chose to be worshipped. Whatever is outside of the sacred space is where people find idolatry, child sacrifice, prostitution. All these kinds the Bible calls abomination. God chose to be worshipped. In the sacred space, he calls Israel. And at this point in the story, David was at the very edge of the territory of Israel in the south. One more step and he will be out of the presence of God, away from the presence of God. 
This is what exactly David told Saul in verse 20. He said, Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of God. He was afraid that he will die outside the presence of God, outside the territory of the presence of God. Again, for him to be driven away from the presence of God is not good. But wait a second. Isn't it God can be found everywhere? Isn't God everywhere? Don't we believe that God is present everywhere? How can we be driven away from the presence of God? I want you to think like an ancient Israelite here. Because David was, was a, an ancient Israelite. He was thinking in this line. So I want you to think of Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they were kicked out of the garden, away from the presence of God. Think of Cain, when he killed his own brother. He was kicked out further east, away from the presence of God. When Jacob was hunted by his own brother Esau, on the issue of inheritance, he was again kicked out, away from the presence of God. Joseph, when he was hunted by his own brother, sold to Egypt, away from the presence of God. See, the whole world was created by God, but he chose one place which he designated a sacred space, his own space, a place where he was, wants to be worshipped. This is where he chose to dwell among his people, to be found in the temple. So that means for David to be driven away from the presence of God is to be away from God. Now here's what's interesting. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, they were about to cross the promised land, but Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. So God told him to go to the top of Mount Nebo and see the promised land. Only see, but not, he's not allowed to go in there. And what's interesting is that in the book of Deuteronomy, God mentioned all the borders of the Holy Land from the north to the south to the east to the west. God mentioned specifically the borders of the land. The question is, why did God have to say or mention the borders of the land? Why is it important? The answer to that is in Moses' sermon in chapter 32 of Exodus, verses 8 and 9. This is what Moses said. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, let me unpack this for you. Now, obviously, the most high there is God. There's no other most high high except God. But, but when did God divide mankind? The answer to that is Genesis 11. You remember the story. God came down, confused the language, and they became nations. And therefore, when they became nations, God divided them according to languages and nations and gave them territories and borders and lands. That's when God divided mankind. What about this phrase, he fixed the borders of the people according to the sons of God? This is controversial. Who are the sons of God? The sons of God here are not Israelites. The son of God here or the sons of God here is an ancient term of the Israelites that refers to the heavenly beings. What this means is that in Genesis 11, God scattered the nations and God gave to the heavenly beings the rule or to rule all these scattered nations. He chose to rule only Israel, but he chose to give or allotted 
all these lands, all these territories, all these borders, all the nations and languages to certain heavenly beings called the sons of God. These are what Apostle Paul reminds us when he mentioned in Ephesians that there's a war that's being waged, a spiritual war that's not waged against flesh and blood, but against authorities, against dominions, against powers, against heavenly forces. These are real. These are higher-ranking heavenly beings who rebelled against God, who's supposed to rule the kingdoms or rule the scattered nations, but post themselves as gods, and therefore, they were worshipped by these nations. These are what Moses calls false gods. Look at verse 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy 32. Moses said, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, small g. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were not gods, small g, to gods whom they have never known, to new gods they had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. I mean, why is it that the whole world are worshiping different gods? It's because these heavenly beings post themselves, presented themselves as gods to these nations. They rebelled against God. That's Genesis chapter 11. In other words, these heavenly beings whom God assigned to rule did not rule well. They were ruling just like Saul. And in this context, the last sentence says that God chose Jacob to become his heritage, his own segula, his own treasured possession. Of all the peoples in the world, of all the land in the world, God chose Israel. I mean, why not, why not Philippines? Why not... Why not Mindanao for this reason? There's, there's no answer, but the Bible says God shows Israel. This is what's interesting because this is what God showed Moses at the peak of Mount Nebo. God showed Moses all the kingdoms, the kingdoms that they're about to possess, the borders of the kingdom. You see, this is what also Satan tried to do when he brought Jesus after the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, when Jesus was brought to the top of the mountain and Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and offered him submission of all the kingdoms of the world. What Satan is saying is that all these gods, all the heavenly beings who are ruling the kingdoms, all the lands and borders, I will give them to you if you but do one condition, bow down and worship me. Satan acted like he's the God who gave the inheritance to these nations by pretending to be offering Jesus the ability to have this inheritance. See, this is not true. Jesus knew better because the Most High, whom he calls Father, not Satan, is the real owner of all lands and territories. Yahweh alone has the right to give away inheritance. You know, there's a certain language here that's the same and very dear to our hearts as Filipinas. Jollibee. Anyone heard about it? Jollibee is the chicken that's very yummy. The, the book of Leviticus uses a different term, but it, you know, kind of sounds the same. It's jubilee. All right? Jollibee is the yummy spaghetti. Jubilee is the 50th year. According to the book of Leviticus 25, every 50th year is designated to cancel all debts. Now, if you have debts, you got to listen to this one. The year of the Jubilee is designated as the year of canceling debts. See, if an Israelite 
needed money, he can temporarily pawn his land until he pays everything he owes. But sometimes due to mismanagement, he's not able to pay. And so therefore, he cannot get back his land. He will have to wait the next cycle of the 50th year. And on the 50th year, his land will be returned to him. God mandates that all lands be returned to its original owners and all debts canceled. That's amazing. I mean, all debts canceled? Come on. This is where we get the prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, what's interesting here is that in Leviticus, what he's saying is that Yahweh is the real owner of the land and he commands that all debts must be canceled. He's the only one who can do that. And based on Deuteronomy 32, Yahweh is the sole owner of Israel, of the land of Israel. Yahweh has, is the owner of Israel, both the people and the land. It belongs to him. What's interesting here is that anyone who claims to be son of God has the privilege of inheritance because inheritance goes hand in hand with being a son. Here's the thought. See, the central theme of the story of the prodigal son, I know you've heard about this, is the issue of inheritance. It's really about inheritance. So when the younger son decided for himself to go abroad one day, he told his father, I want to get my inheritance. And his father gave it to him and he sold his land. We're talking about inheritance. He sold his land. The moment he sold his inheritance, he lost all connections to his father and to the land. That's why when he changed his mind, he got back, he said, treat me not as a son, but as a slave. Well, obviously, because he's not son anymore. See, the ownership of inheritance and being a son goes hand in hand. But you may ask, Pastor, what has this got to do with me? What is this talk about inheritance got to do with me? Well, everything here has got to do with you. Here's the thing. People think that everyone is a child of God. That is not true. But it's not true at all. The Bible doesn't say that. See, we are, we are made to believe when we sing Michael Jackson's song, We Are the World. You know that song, We Are the World? If you've been born, uh, I don't know, I shouldn't be looking anywhere. <laughs> we Are the World, that's a very popular song. But here's this verse that tells us that Michael Jackson thinks that everyone is child's God. There's this verse that says, we can't go on pretending day by day that someone somewhere soon make a change. We're all a part of God's great big family. And the truth, you know, love is all we need. This is one great big fat lie. This is not true. We are not all in God's big family. Why do you say that? Listen to John chapter 1 verse 12. This is what he said. But to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What this means is that not everyone are children of God. I mean, this hurts, but this is true. You have to meet one condition to become a child of God. You've got to believe. It says, we who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is the same term that we use, born again. You've got to be born again. But that, this means that is not everyone, not everyone is a child of God. Everyone you see is made in the image of God, but not everyone is a child of God. 
No, there's certain conditions that must be met before one can become a child of God. And the children of God must be born again. This is the issue when Jesus was conversing with Nicodemus. You remember that in John chapter 3? Jesus was conversing with this old Pharisee, and Nicodemus was asking, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? How do I enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, you have to be born again. I mean, that's kind of odd. I'm old. I cannot go back to my mom's tummy. How do I get born again? And Jesus was trying to explain, this is something spiritual. This is not physical. You've got to be born again. So how does this happen exactly? The explanation goes back to the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son changed his mind, he got back and he said, treat me not as a son but as a slave because he lost his legal status as a son, not biological, but legal status as a son. His father said in Luke chapter 15 verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What just happened there? What just happened there is that the father adapted the son back and restored him into the fellowship as a son. He was not born again physically, but he was adapted. That legal term is adoption. His father adopted him back into the family. That is being born again. So when the Bible says you have to be born again, what the Bible is saying is that we all have to be adapted into the family of God. And how does that happen if we believe that's how it happens? Have you ever wondered why the Jews who are already in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, still ask Jesus when Jesus was around, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? How do I enter the kingdom of God? Well, they're already in the land. Why are still they asking this one? Because you see, for them, it's obvious. Just by being in the land, just by owning a piece of land, just by being there or being born a Jew doesn't make you God's son. That's why they're still asking, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? Well, it's the same thing. Simply sitting, simply being in my house doesn't make you my son. Simply sitting at my table and eating with the family doesn't make you my son. You know what people do? When people think that they are son, well, in fact, they are guests. They're guests. Going to church doesn't make you a son. Attending Bible study doesn't make you a son. Reading the Bible doesn't make you a son. To become a son, you have to be born again. In legal terms, you have to be adopted in the family of God. There's only one way to be adopted in the family of God. And there's one condition the Bible says, according to John chapter 1, it's to believe. But belief doesn't mean do I believe in fairy and tooth fairy? Do I believe in ghosts? Not that kind of belief. Belief here is best expressed in what Satan asked Jesus when he was brought to the top of the mountain. You see, Satan said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. I will become your father. I will give you this as inheritance. Only if you bow down and worship me. It's called submission. See, if you've, if you've seen the Game of Thrones, that's, that's the whole idea behind Killing everyone. The bend the knee, bend the knee, bend the knee. Who's really the big king? Who's going to sit on the iron throne? Satan was that. He was telling Jesus, he was saying, I am the God Almighty. I can give to you this as your inheritance. Only you have to do one thing. Submit. This is the word for believe. Submit. See, submission to the will of God is believing in God. It's a kind of submission that encompasses your way of life. 
the word Islam is submission. It encompasses your faith, your way of life. It's a kind of submission that results in following Jesus. This is what Jesus said. If anyone who wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. It's not just believing one time and then get out. It's believing and following him every day. That is believing, submission. You see, without submission, you're just a guest in the kingdom. Without submission, you cannot claim inheritance as a son. Without submission, you cannot call God your father. Without submission, you're a guest in the kingdom of God. And so 1 Samuel is a call to all the followers of Jesus to stay in the presence of God. Just like David, continue believing, stay faithful, continue following God. But 1 Samuel 26 is also an open invitation to those who acknowledge that they are not yet part of the family of God. If this is you, I'm not going to call for a decision right now. I don't want any emotional decision. And then the following day you'll say, I changed my mind. This is something that you have to think about. This is like marrying someone. You have to think thoroughly, carefully, calmly, respectfully. This is something that you want to think about. Because the Bible said, if you do something, you have to count the cost. If I decide for Jesus, can I do it? If I decide to follow Jesus, can I do it? You see, what's interesting here is that many times when, when people make decisions to follow God, it's just instantaneous and emotional. That's why we don't see their lives really transform disciples of Jesus Christ. So what I want you, what do you to do sometime this week when you're alone I want you to talk to God. It doesn't matter what words you say. What matters is your decision. See, the thief on the cross didn't go to church, didn't go to Sunday school, didn't go to Bible study. He didn't even pray the sinner's prayer. He just said, remember me. That's it. So when you're alone, you talk to God. It doesn't have to be big words. It doesn't even have to be the right words. Because all you have to do really is to make a decision. It's not the words. It's the decision you're making for God. It's when you say, I do. I want to follow you. I do. I want to give my life for you. I do. I want to be your disciple. I do. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being your son. We thank you for this great news that we can become your son. And we thank you also for the news that as son, you discipline us. You put us in the right, just like David. You vindicate us. Thank you, Father, for the privileges of having an inheritance with you. Thank you for, for the hope that someday soon we will inherit the earth. It's what you said. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Thank you, Jesus for the promise that someday soon you will renew the heaven and the earth. The new heaven and the earth we will inherit. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the earth. We will have to be transformed just like the body of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this hope. Father, I pray for those who have not yet made any decision. I pray that you will talk to them in a very personal way. Father, talk to them. And I pray that your Holy Spirit be the one to convict them. Let these words not return to you void. Bless us today as we keep on following you. Keep on staying in your presence. Keep on loving you. In Jesus' name.
Amen.